Bible with you, uh, open it up to Genesis 19. If you don't, the Bible in the pew in front of you is available, and uh, we're going to be on page 14 there. If, if you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible with you as a gift. We would love you to have a Bible. Um, we'll be doing a little Q&R at the end here, so if you... I couldn't imagine what questions you would have about this chapter, uh, but if you do, uh, you can go on slido.com and uh, type in RevCDA and answer your, or ask your question. Uh, yeah, another, another weird one. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to your word believing that it is inspired by you, that it is a gift that you've given to us, that it is profitable, all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, for correction, so that we may be equipped for every good work. And we read a text like this and, and go like, what is going on here? And God, I just pray that, that we, would, um, we would trust you. We would trust that this word for us this morning matters. That we would open our ears to your spirit speaking. God, I pray for my words that they would be your words. But then even beyond that, that you would just meet all of us uh, in the place that we're at. And... Uh, And just communicate truth. God, I, I pray for um, all of the hearts in this room that have come off of a variety of circumstances this week, some really good, some really awful, some just kind of a mix. God, you know, you know what we need. I just pray that we would be expectant to hear you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Georgie Henley, if you've seen the Chronicles, the Chronicles of Narnia movies, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they came out a few years ago. Georgie Henley was Lucy. Did anybody know Lucy from, from Narnia? Yeah, some of you. Um, She's just a cute little girl, played that part. She's 27 now, so that makes me feel old. When I was reading a story about her this week, um, when she turned 18, she was diagnosed with something called uh, necrotizing fasciitis. I think I'm pronouncing that right, maybe. Close enough. Yeah, okay. Um, And that means that she had a flesh-eating bacteria in her arm that was just destroying her body. And uh, she was treated with intense antibiotics, uh, multiple surgeries, skin grafts, and the doctors almost came to a point to where they were just going to have to amputate her arm. Fortunately, they didn't do that. But when we think about that, I I think about like amputation as like, that's a civil war thing, right? Like a bullet wound and we're going to have to cut off his leg, right? Because there's nothing, there's no medical technology to deal with that kind of injury. And, and it kind of surprises me that even today, sometimes the only option is, oh, we're just going to have to take this off. We're going to have to get rid of it. Amputation is this, still this last resort in medicine, right? And aren't you glad it's a last resort? You, know, you ever joke with your kids, if, if you've got kids, like they get a little paper cut and you're like, oh, we're going to have to cut it off. No! Everybody knows that, no, I just need a, you know, a kiss and a Band-Aid. But sometimes, sometimes you just have to remove the infection. And this story, this text today is an example of that kind of dealing with wickedness. Judgment is something that we don't really like, typically, in the Bible. We get to these passages, and it makes us uncomfortable. Some of it's just because we're modern people who have sensibilities that are out of touch with the Scriptures, but even still, just being humans, the idea that 
that there would be judgment and destruction is unsettling. God goes out of his way to destroy people. It makes us uncomfortable. But it's also pretty rare in the scriptures. God's normal procedure is patiently waiting for people to turn from their sin over and over and over again, sometimes decades, sometimes generations. Turn around, come back to me. But at some point, there's a, there's a, there's a point of no return. And in, in this story, we're going to see in this city, Sodom, and the cities of the plain, that, that God decides there's nothing more to be done. We have to amputate. So before we get into the text itself, I'm going to do a little, I think this is interesting. Um, there's been a lot of recent archaeological research around Sodom. For a long time, nobody knew where Sodom was, and it's still an open question, but there's this dig in the nation of Jordan called Tal el-Hammam, and I think I've got a map. So this is um, kind of a, a, a from space view of uh, the Sinai Peninsula in Saudi Arabia and Israel, and you can see the Dead Sea. Tal el-Hammam is up at the top right corner of the Dead Sea. Um, it's this settlement that is, has been excavated by a guy named Dr. Stephen Collins. And he's been excavating it for about 15 years. He's a pretty controversial figure. He has biblical reasons for thinking that the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is in this area north of the Dead Sea. There are other scholars and archaeologists and scientists who would disagree with him and say that Sodom and Gomorrah is at the south end of the Dead Sea, maybe underwater at this point in history. But he maintains for a variety of reasons, and, and you can look at him up online, he's got lots of videos on it, that, that this is the site of Sodom. And his theory got a massive boost in credibility uh, last year. Um, Forbes came out with this article in September titled, A Massive Meteor May Have Destroyed the Biblical City of Sodom. And it's talking about a paper in the journal Nature. So a significant scientific journal. Um, and in the paper, I'm going to read some of the um, synopsis. It says, we present evidence that in about 1650 BCE, roughly 3,600 years ago, a cosmic airburst destroyed Tal el-Hammam, a middle Bronze Age city in the southern Jordan Valley, northeast of the Dead Sea. The proposed airburst was larger than the 1908 explosion over Tunguska, Russia, where a 50-meter-wide bolide detonated with 1,000 times more energy than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Heating experiments indicate temperatures exceeded 2,000 degrees Celsius. Amid city-side devastation, the airburst demolished 12-plus meters of the four- to five-story palace complex and the massive four-meter-thick mud-brick rampart while causing extreme disarticulation and skeletal fragmentation in nearby humans. An airburst-related influx of salt, 4% by weight, produced hypersalinity, inhibited agriculture, and caused a 300- to 600-year-long abandonment of 120 regional settlements within a 25-kilometer radius. So based on this other team's archaeological evidence, they've deduced that something fell out of the sky and destroyed these cities about the same time that the Bible says this event happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a picture of the palace complex. This is an artist's reconstruction of what it would have looked like. Uh, like they said, four to five stories tall. And then the next picture is where they find it now. And they have concluded that the walls have not just eroded, they have been sheared off by the impact. They said also in the paper that they found minerals that only form under intense heat. They found um, other artifacts that just that show this immense um, instantaneous destruction that, according to their research, cannot be just a simple fire. So the reason I bring this up is I just think it's interesting. We believe that the Bible is authoritative, that it's God's word, and so we don't need archaeological evidence to say that this really happened. I trust that this happened because I believe that the Bible is true. But it's always interesting when after 
generations, sometimes hundreds of years of skepticism people, people throw at the scriptures over and over and over again as people actually start digging stuff up in the middle of the e- Middle East, we find things that align with what the scriptures say. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised about this, but it is always kind of nice to go, huh, well, that's exactly what the Bible said it would be like. Now, other scholars in the field don't find this data convincing, and if you want to go down that rabbit hole, you can. I spent too much time on it this week, Um, but it is an interesting archaeological dig nonetheless. So to our text, this is a story about judgment for wickedness. Again, something that makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about it. We want, we want to talk about how much Jesus loves us and cares for us and how he's compassionate and kind, and those things are all true. But these stories are here, and we can't just skip them. That's one of the benefits of deciding to go through the book of, a Bible, of the Bible is like, it would be, um, uh, you'd call me out, I think, if I just skipped the chapter, right? I hope so. So what do we find here? The first thing that I want to point out is that this is another flood story. Remember how the author of Genesis is constantly using words from other parts of the text to clue the audience into what's going on. He's using flood words and flood language, and the way he's ordering this story is connecting us back to the judgment at the flood. So here's a question. This is, you know, feel free to, 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 make a, to talk to me here. What preceded the flood in Genesis 6? What? Yeah. So what, what, what else, how else would you phrase that? Bloodshed, violence, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, some weird thing happens. Sons of God see the daughters of men, that they're beautiful. They, they take wives of them. There's this weird mixing of angelic beings and human beings in, in, in a sexual way, right? Uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. The Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. And when we were like 100 years ago, back when we were in Genesis 6, we talked about how this is a boundary violation between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. This particular wickedness triggers God's judgment in the flood. And we find very similar circumstances in the city of Sodom. Now, the, the men of the city and the angels, that doesn't happen, but that's the context of the violence in Sodom. In Genesis 7-4, God tells Noah that he will make it rain on the earth. In 1924, God rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from Yahweh. God destroys the earth in Genesis 6. He destroys the city of the plain in 1929. God remembers Noah and delivers him through the flood in the ark in Genesis 8. God remembers Abraham in 1929, and he rescues Lot out of Sodom. The flood story ends with Noah getting drunk and his son committing a sexual sin against him. The Sodom story ends with Lot getting drunk and his daughters committing a sexual sin against him. So both of these stories are meant to be looked at in tandem. And they're both stories of judgment. They both teach us that God is patient with humanity, but there comes a time when his patience runs out. And in order to be be true to his character, his justice, he will destroy evil. This isn't just another flood story. It's also another hospitality story. I talked about this last week, that these two chapters are framed in the context of Middle Eastern hospitality. Um, the angels go to Abraham and he rolls out the red carpet for them in this outpouring of hospitality. In Sodom, we read something different. In verse 1 of 19, the two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. 
No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. So the city gate is where legal and political work would be done. Lot, it seems, at this point, is a leader in the city because he is stationed at the city gate. And just like Abraham, he offers generously his own hospitality to the strangers. He makes them a feast. But then something goes horribly wrong. Verse 4, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So this situation is so unsettling, right? The narrator goes out of his way to say, like the whole city showed up. This isn't just one or two weird people. This is the entire character of this town is shaped by what's going on in this moment. It's hard to imagine a worse reflection on the character of the people of Sodom than this. Lot went out to them at the entrance, verse 6, and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. So Lot, he tries to reason with them. The two men under his care, they're under his protection. The hospitality code of the Middle East would have required him to protect these men after inviting them into his home. And then he goes out alone to face the mob. And it's, in one sense, it's actually pretty heroic that he's willing to put his own life on the line for his guests. But then he decides to offer his daughters up to be raped in order to protect his visitors. This is how high he sees his duty to be hospitable, but it also shows us that his soul has been polluted by the character of Sodom as well. Remember, he started by looking at Sodom and thinking it was great, and then he pitched his tent there. And then he moved into the city in chapter 14. The kings came and and took everything, and Abraham had to come save him. And now he's a leader sitting in the gate of Sodom. His progression towards this deepening relationship with this people is affecting his moral compass to the point that he would give up his own daughters to appease the crowd. Verse 9, get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he is acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. So they turn on Lot, and they comment that he's a foreigner. Like, who is he to judge them? He just showed up in this town, and and now he's trying to uh, be a judge over us. Ironically, he probably is a judge. It looks like he's sitting in the city gate as a judge, but the men of the city aren't going to listen to this stranger. And at this point, the angels, who I don't think anybody knows what's going on at this point, but at this point, the angels reveal themselves as supernatural beings. They pull Lot in the house and they strike the mob with blindness. Uh, The NASB, I think, has a better translation of verse 11. It says, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness from the small to the great so that they became weary of trying to find the doorway. See, ideally... Being struck blind would cause you to rethink your life choices, right? Like if you're, if you're going down a road and all of a sudden from out of nowhere, you're struck with supernatural blindness, maybe you're going to stop and contemplate some things, maybe the emphases of your life, maybe your actions are a little out of line, but this is not what they do. They double down on trying to break into the house and they they weary themselves out searching for the doorway in their blindness. And this is what we need to be aware of when we think about judgment. Because God's judgment falls on a person or a people when they are fully committed to actively opposing God. This is not ignorance or a mistake These men are not repentant. They're not turning away from their wickedness. 
Even in, in their supernaturally induced blindness, they are more than ever committed to standing opposed to righteousness. And this is how we are expected to understand what these cities are like. So verse 12, destruction is coming. The angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. So the angels have come down to inspect the city. I, I think this is important. Like God, God is omnipotent. God is everywhere. God knows everything, but he's still doing like due diligence work. He, he is so committed to not destroying someone who doesn't deserve it that he's going to send these angels down to inspect. The angels have seen enough. The city is wicked beyond saving. And Lot is the only one in the city that does not deserve to be destroyed. In whatever limited way, even though Lot has been morally polluted by the culture of this place, he is still righteous. He still trusts in Yahweh. We get some commentary in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2. For as that righteous man, talking about Lot, lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Lot is living in this city. He came there for financial reasons. It's a warning to us to make decisions primarily because of the money. That was his choice to take that ground, to, to separate from Abraham, to live in this area, and then to become a part of the city, and then to become a leader in the city. And I'm sure he has all kinds of really good reasons for that, but he knows deep down this place is broken. And he goes to tell his sons-in-law, God is going to destroy this place but they don't believe him. They think he's joking. And I think this is one of the most depressing parts of this story. The world is falling apart. And this is the moment that Lot has to share his belief in his God with his community and to offer hope of salvation to them. But he has no moral credibility. They think he's joking. And I wonder sometimes, isn't this where we are finding ourselves as the church in America? And I don't, I don't mean any of us necessarily personally, although I think it's worth our own introspection, but as a whole in this country, we've compromised ourselves for so long that when things are difficult and there is an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with those in our culture, our moral authority is so diluted that no one believes us. Some of you know my oldest daughter has spent the last week at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah uh, with a group of other teenagers doing, pretending to be on Mars. And um, one, of the th- one of the comments she made is she, she's the only follower of Jesus in her group, and they're all high school students. And, and it came up that she was a Christian, and they all didn't believe her because she was too nice. Because everything that they know about Christians is that Christians are jerks. And that's so unfortunate. And I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to spend the morning bragging on my daughter, but she's such an amazing girl and she got to share the truth of the gospel with her crewmates. And yeah, she's great. <laughs> but, but that's an indictment to us, isn't it? As, as a people, that the, the, the coming generation, the high schoolers of our day from all around the country go, oh, Christian, I know what a Christian is. Christians are jerks. There's a book by uh, Pastor Sky Jatani called What If Jesus Was Serious? And in the introduction, he talks about Christians being pushed to the margins of our culture. And in many ways, I see that happening But then he says, there is an interpretation of the current cultural landscape which assumes Christians are marginalized because we take Jesus too seriously. This view says if we just relax, hold our faith more loosely, and let popular values override biblical ones, then we'd find more acceptance in the culture. 
But what if we have it backward? What if the underlying malady afflicting Christians today isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but that we've failed to take him seriously enough? What if much of the culture's judgment of Christians isn't the result of obeying Jesus, but the result of Christians ignoring him? Lot, by the way that he was living, wasn't taking Yahweh seriously. So why should his sons-in-law? And I think it's just, it's really important to ask that about ourselves. Are we taking Jesus seriously? When it comes time to, to warn of the coming destruction of sin and death to the people in our community, do they think we really believe it? Do they think we really trust in Christ? Or do we, they think we're joking? So then the destruction comes. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, this is verse 15, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, because the Lord's, but because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too, and I will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife turned back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. So this section, along with verses 30 to 38, which I'm I'm not going to dive into. I think they're pretty Um, self-explanatory. This is the end of Lot's story. And it's, it's pretty sad, isn't it? After everything with the angels the night before, after the supernatural blinding, after, after the warning that I'm going to destroy the city, Lot really doesn't want to leave. He hesitates. He's not really sure it's worth it. They drag his family out of the city because of the Lord's compassion, right? How many times is the Lord's compassion dragging you out of something? And that compassion, it it doesn't even directly extend to Lot. It, It flows through Abraham, right? Because God remembers Abraham, because Abraham prayed for Lot, interceded on Lot's behalf. A good reminder for us to be praying for people. That God listens when we pray. But then Lot's wife. It seems weird to think that Lot's wife just kind of looks behind her and she's killed for it. It's kind of a it's kind of a just a weird part of the story. And and I think I think Jesus helps us with that. In Luke 17, Jesus is talking about the final judgment, the end of this world the inauguration of the new one. And he says, it will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And what I think Jesus is warning about 
is not this kind of weird, like, all I did was turn around and look at what was going on behind me thing, but he's warning about this idea of going back, turning your back on on where God is taking you and returning to the old life. I think Jesus is intimating that, that Lot's wife didn't just turn around and look at the city, but she actually went back to Sodom. Maybe she didn't believe the angels. Maybe she just didn't want to go live in this little town. We don't know. But she returns, I think, to the city, and she's caught up in its destruction. And then we, then we see Lot's daughters. I don't have a whole lot to add to the rest of this chapter with Lot's daughters. If, if you have questions, you can, you can text them in. But they think their family line is, is ruined if they don't sleep with their father for some reason. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to understand exactly what's going on. It might be that, that Lot doesn't have any sons and he's getting old and they think they need to provide him with a son for his line. Um, it doesn't seem like they think that there are no other men alive because they were just in this town, Zor, that didn't get destroyed. Um, their reasoning seems like they think they're being honorable, but their moral compass has been damaged so much by this city. They get him drunk, and they birth two children through him who end up becoming um, the founders of the Moabites and the Ammonites, who are two neighbors of the people of Israel hundreds of years later. So, so what, are we, what are we supposed to do with all this? Right? Like, that's the story. Why does God execute judgment on this city? Why does he destroy Sodom? And it's really easy to say it's because of homosexuality, right? Like, and that's been a kind of a classic understanding of this text. And I think that's a factor, but the scriptures actually have a much broader understanding of the sins of Sodom. In Isaiah 3, we read, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because they have spoken and acted against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them, and like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, they have brought disaster on themselves. Isaiah tells us that Sodom flaunted their sin. So so most people, if they're going to do something evil, they're going to go try and hide it. That's why a lot of times crime takes place at night, right? Because we know we're doing something wrong and we want to make sure we don't get caught. So we're going to do it under cover of darkness in the secret. But Sodom's sin was out in the open. They're, They're proud of the things that they did. Ezekiel 16, we read, Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me, so I removed them when I saw this. Ezekiel said they did detestable acts, and this can definitely cover sexual sin, but he also mentions pride and material wealth and security, but a failure to support the needy. Turns out that's a pretty big deal to God. The people of Sodom didn't care for the vulnerable when they had the means to do so. And it's really easy to focus on this gang rape scenario and write off Sodom as not a thing that we need to think about. But when we start thinking about having more material wealth than we need and not caring for the poor in our midst, that hits a lot closer home to our culture. Here's Jesus again in Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus condemns the people of Capernaum because all of the opportunity that they had witnessing the work of Jesus. After all of that, they still willfully rejected him. And that's, I think, the the big idea of this story is is that these are people that have decided, that have purposed in their heart to reject the authority of their king. 
What does that say about who we are as a people? Christians, absolutely, but, but as a nation, as a society, whether we're people who abuse our bodies and the bodies of others through sexual sin, or whether we're just proud, greedy, the focal point of all of it becomes a willful refusal to submit to Jesus as our King and our Lord. Remember last week, Abraham's question, will not the Lord of the whole earth do what is just? That still applies today, right? If we just don't care and we continue to walk in sin and evil, we will be destroyed when God judges the world one last time. And God is, is so incredibly patient with us, right? I mean, <laughs> you can read preachers going back hundreds of years prophesying the end of Western civilization right now because of its incessant wickedness. But God waits. He woos. He pursues. He draws people. Second Peter 3, we read, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, Jesus in the gospel calls out to people, turn to me and live. Jesus comes to save us out of the destruction that is coming. Because God, if he is going to be true to who he is, really, we talked about this a little bit last week, God is just, it flows from his being. If he is going to be true to himself, he has to work justice in the world. And he will. All of the evils will be made right. But now is the day that we have been given the opportunity to trust in Christ. When will Jesus return and judge the world? We don't know. All we know is that today we have the opportunity to trust him. Lot's wife is an example to us by returning to Sodom. She was on this path of rescue, but she decided she didn't want it, and she was destroyed in the judgment. The book of Hebrews offers a similar warning in chapter 10, for yet in a little while the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. If he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. And that's the plea. Don't turn back. Don't forsake Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and you're, you're a mess. Good news, Lot was a mess, right? Everything in this story highlights how much of a mess Lot is. But Lot did not give up on God. He didn't turn his back on Yahweh. As much as he hemmed and hawed and, and bargained and, and, and had this weird moral compass that was so skewed and broken, he trusted in Yahweh to save him. And the New Testament says that Lot was righteous. And Lot is righteous in the same way that we are all righteous, by faith, by trusting in Christ. Not because we've got everything figured out, not because we do all the right things and check all the right boxes, but because Christ is faithful and he has come to rescue us. And so today, this disturbing story is a reminder for us that we have the opportunity to trust in Christ. And I recognize that many of us in this room would say, yeah, I've already done that. Good. Lot's wife did it for a while too. And then she turned back. 
And maybe you're here and, and you've never trusted in Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian today. And I'm excited that you're here. And this is a pretty weird story to come into church and, and hear. But it's the grace of God to you saying, you have an opportunity to trust in Christ, to flee the coming judgment, to be rescued by a God who is patient and will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. We have the opportunity to let Jesus dictate the kind of people we are, the kind of life that we lead. We have an opportunity to live in a way that whether other people follow us or not, people know we are serious about our commitment to Christ. And that's, I think, the challenge for us today as followers of Jesus, that that we, by his grace, are the kind of people that the world goes, you know what, I may not agree with you Christians, but I respect you because you're serious about what you believe. And hopefully more than that, that when destruction is coming, men and women in our lives will look to us and go, how can I be saved from the coming judgment? That's the the gift that we have been given as Christians to draw people to our Savior. So, do a little little Q&R. It seems hard to believe that blindness would not stop them. Could this be an analogy of a hardness of heart akin to Pharaoh in the Exodus story? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can see that it's that I can see what you're saying that it's hard to believe that blindness wouldn't stop them. But if it is an analogy of a hardness of heart, I think having a hard heart would create the actual circumstances where blindness wouldn't stop them, right? Like they obviously have a hardness of heart. They're unwilling to repent from their sins and that is expressed in their tenacity at continuing to want to pursue wickedness even in the midst of this blindness. So I don't think, I I think both of those things could be true. Is this a biblical judgment on Moab and Ammon? The modern city of Ammon, Jordan is still named for them. Seems interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Moab and Ammon are are kind of a mixed bag in the scriptures. Sometimes they're painted as like close relatives of the people of Israel. And sometimes they do terrible things and there's war and there's judgment. Um, So there's this constant like back and forth of um, like sibling rivalry, I guess. That's a really interesting theme to trace through uh, the Torah is the theme of sibling rivalry. It starts with Cain and Abel, and it just kind of continues on through the Genesis narrative into the people of Israel. And um, there's always brothers or cousins who can't get along. And so whether, I mean, it's, it's obviously a statement about how these nations came to be and how unsavory that was. Um, But further on in the text, like sometimes the Moabites and the Ammonites are kind of like a neutral party, and other times they're enemies of God. Does God still judge in this manner today, or is he saving judgment for Jesus' return? Did we intercede for nations like North Korea and the Kims? Well, I think we should definitely intercede for nations like North Korea, you know, and... Canada and the United States and Italy and well, you know all I mean, every nation is a nation filled with sinners. Um, every nation is a, is a nation that needs Christ. I think North Korea is a good example of one that seems kind of extreme. But yeah, like wouldn't it be awesome if news came out from North Korea that the ruling house of North Korea found Jesus? Praise God for that. It's not outside of his abilities. But does God still judge like this? I think so. Like, I, I get really cautious about people that like, you know, there was an earthquake in this city, so that's God's judgment. I, I think that's pretty, I'm not sure that we have the authority and the right to pronounce those kind of things. I don't think we have the knowledge to do that. Um, but I do think that when someone has sufficiently gone to a place where God says, I just, I've given you chance after chance after chance, and there aren't any more chances left, 
God sometimes acts. And I think that's rare because I think God's heart starts with compassion and uh, loving kindness and grace, long-suffering. That's how he describes himself to Moses. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to say, no, don't worry about it. There's not going to be any judgment until the final judgment. I think that would be foolish. And God can do whatever he wants. How do we change people's minds about Christians when so many of us use scripture like this one to spread hate instead of love and kindness and patience? Well, I think it's pretty, I, I think looking at the Christian culture around us, and, and it's, it's a mixed bag. It's really easy to be critical of the, the Christian culture, and I've been critical this morning of it, but there are a lot of really beautiful things that Christians and churches do in our country. Um, I'm not so sure it's fruitful for us individually to waste much time on that either way. I think the most fruitful thing for us to do is to uh, know people well that are not Christians and befriend them and be kind to them. You know, there are, um, there are six teenagers this week that are going back to their respective cities going like, I met a Christian this week that wasn't a jerk because of... because of the witness of my daughter. And again, not up here to like (laughs) put my daughter on a pedestal. She's got all kinds of problems, trust me. Um, But if we are people that get to know non-believers in an honest, loving way, we actually have friends who are not Christians, they will begin to recognize that not all Christians are awful. And, And they'll begin to see that when they hear a news report of some terrible thing happening in the name of Jesus, they'll go like, oh, that's outside of the Jesus that I know because I know someone who introduced me to what Jesus is really like. And that's not something that we can do by like, you know, a social media campaign or a boycott or whatever, but it is something that we can do individually in our own lives. And I think that's way more fruitful than stressing out about what's going on in the world. Although we should be aware of what's going on in the world. Last one. Can we change the world's mind about Christians when we're the scum of the earth? We want to love and lead others to repentance so it would make sense. I'm not sure what that question means. Anybody want to volunteer that they sent that in? Yeah, Dylan, what do you got? Oh, right, gotcha. Perfect, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of a paradox, right? Like, the, the message of the gospel is death to those that are perishing, Paul says, right? But it's an aroma of life to those who are being saved. And so the Holy Spirit draws people and leads people, and we witness to the truth and the goodness of God. And yeah, people might hate us, but we need to be really careful that they hate us because they hate Jesus and not because we're jerks, right? There's a big difference there. Like the way we are to subvert and push back against the culture is through sacrificial love and surrender on behalf of our enemies. And if in the midst of that, they still hate us, then again, judgment is coming for those that don't turn. But if they hate us because we're just nasty or we decide the only way to bring the message of Jesus forward is to use the tactics of the world to do it, see, that's out of line with the gospel. And that's not where we should be as Christians. There is, I, was, I, was, I was listening to something this week and I, I, the guy said, there is never, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up his quote, but There is never an excuse for abandoning the way of Jesus to accomplish the goals of Jesus. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And so if we're being critiqued by the culture in a way that's, like, you don't look like Jesus, then we have some self-reflection to do. But if we're being critiqued by the culture and we're loving our enemies and we're sacrificing and caring for those in need, and, and, and taking the consequences of that subversion, which you can read, I mean, that's not happening today in our world, but it happens all over the world and it has happened in the past and it'll probably happen here in the future. 
If we're living a cross-shaped life following after our master in self-sacrifice and loving our enemies, and they still hate us, then, then that's the thing that brings the judgment of God, a willful disobedience and unwillingness to turn. And I hope, hope is the wrong word, I hope that persecution doesn't come to this nation, but if persecution does come to this nation on a large scale, I hope that the church rises up in that posture and not the one of self-preservation and violence in the name of Christ. So, that's all I have to say about that. We're going to take communion. And this is the demonstration of the gospel that we rehearse for one another each week, right? That we are not saved by our good works. We are not saved by our sexual purity. We are not saved by giving to the poor, but by trusting in the gift of Christ on our behalf. And those of us that come up every week to this table to receive the bread and the cup are proclaiming that we have given our allegiance to Jesus. And we take the bread and the cup, and by faith, we understand that the body and blood of Christ was broken for us, that Jesus took God's judgment that we deserve on himself on our behalf. And so as the band comes up, as we sing, as we remind each other through song of the character of God and our place in his kingdom, I would just invite you up uh, to take the bread and the cup. We have juice and wine per the dictates of your conscience. If you've put your trust and your hope in Christ this morning, you take communion with us. I just invite you to worship the one who saves you from the coming judgment. You're free to, to sit or stand as we sing. You're free to come up and use the prayer rugs to kneel if you'd like to change the posture of your body as you pray and worship. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.